Hey, it's Chris Urban. Welcome to the Triple Clicks Video Game Marketing Podcast. Heading into the launch of the next generation of hardware this holiday, I wanted to talk to my friend Albert Pinello, who spent almost 18 years at Microsoft working on the development and marketing of Xbox hardware. We had a great conversation about what it was like to work with Robbie Bach and Bill Gates in the early days at Xbox and what goes into the strategy of building consoles. He was willing to discuss how many times he's been called into the Microsoft HR office to explain his people-to-kill list he had posted in his office, but strangely wouldn't discuss the amount of chocolate milk and Pop-Tarts he consumed in his 18-year career there. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. Albert Pinello, joining us. Thanks for, uh, thanks for taking the time. Thanks for having me on. Of course. Listen, it's that time of the year. Uh, I guess that's this time of the decade where we've got new hardware coming out from, from both companies. Um, and there's someone that I really wanted to dig into about uh, as we, we're going to start talking about that hardware as we get a little bit closer. But I really want to talk about the journey of, of building hardware. And I felt sure. like there's no one better to talk to than, than you. Al- Albert spent a little over 17, almost 18 years at, at Microsoft building consoles. Um, and I want to dig into what it's like to build the consoles, what, what kind of decisions do you guys make? How do you get into it? Um, the first thing I wanted to bring up was Electronic Arts, EA. Yeah. We, we missed each other. You were there from what, 90, you were there for 94 to 2000? 94 to 2000. That's right. Yeah. I, I, I was like my first real job. I started as a marketing assistant there. Uh, before that, I actually answered phones at Sega, like way back in the day, like, Man, you know, veteran. A, a million years ago. Uh, but yeah, 94 to 2000 worked with Frank Jabot was my yeah. boss for a while. I'm sure, you know, Frank, Very well. um, launched a ton of titles that franchises that don't exist anymore, old stuff like <laughs> Soviet strike and, you know, road rash and a bunch of, uh, bullfrog stuff. Oh my God. So many things. Uh, need for speed still exists. He worked on need for speed. I did. Um, and the, I have James Bond down, which James Bond did you work on? So that was, so that actually was like my last big, um, sort of marketing thing I got to do was I did the PlayStation version of, oh my God, is it tomorrow never dies? Okay. And then, sure. uh, that was, and then I was working on the world is not enough N64 version right when I left. So yeah, okay. did, did the Bond games. That was like my big, big with Clive Downey, who's at uh, Zynga was my, he was my European counterpart back in those days. Yeah. It's crazy how many overlaps we have. I think we had talked about them before we jumped on, uh, whether it's Microsoft or, or EA and Nathan Stewart. And we have a lot of connections, which we'll get into, but, um, yeah, I, I think I came in in 2004, 2005 on the Madden franchise. Um, and we did some big James Bond titles. They, I think they brought Connery in for, for the last one I think we had done. So we did some fun stuff. So I was always a little bit jealous. I didn't get to work on that franchise. It was fun to work. It was fun to work on the old stuff. It was like a good learning experience. Great marketing. I mean, great marketing to do uh, sort of movie tie-in stuff way back in the early days of movie tie-in stuff. Mm-hmm. Now, I mean, it's sort of like, you know, everybody's doing movie tie-in games, but, but back in the day, it was kind of a big deal. It was very exciting. Yeah. No, it was, and it was a great franchise. You left EA in 2000 and you land at Microsoft, um, and which is literally the perfect time because it's uh, a year, a year before the OG Xbox launches. Um, when you landed, uh, what were you working on? So it's funny. So I had done marketing up until that point. So all my time at EA was in product marketing and I got hired to do this interesting role, which, uh, was called product planning. 
And you probably remember this at EA too. I, I used to sort of say like half of our time, I heard you talk on the other podcasts about embedded marketers in the studios. Back when I was there, it was kind of like 50% of your time was sort of outbound marketing and 50% of your time was working on the studios on their new franchises and forecasting and sort of the business of gaming. Um, and product planning is kind of that part of the job. So it's the, it's the um, inbound uh, marketing and it, it was a, uh, was sort of halfway between engineering and marketing, but sat in the marketing org. So I was the planner for the original Xbox um, and sort of was the planner for basically all of the consoles up through um, Project Scorpio or Xbox One X. Okay. And what's, not to be confused with Series X, which is not mine. <laughs> yeah. We talk about the naming, uh, the naming, uh, the direction they take those names. What did you, um, what, so what's a planner for people? jumping in for the first time, explain the planner role. So I, you know, I kind of think of it as sort of the voice of the customer to the engineering organization. So if you think about like building any product, be it a game, a piece of hardware, there's, there's price product promotion, right? The P's of marketing and someone has to work with the engineering team to sort of figure out what's the plan. How many of these are we going to sell? What are the features going to be? What are the price points? What is the competition? So what is the roadmap? Like is another sort of industry term. So I was kind of responsible for the, the roadmap, which meant working with marketing, working with engineering, and then sort of presenting kind of a, a rough business and product plan and that, that people could rally around. And then you go off and you sort of build each individual product. Um, and, and each of those has, again, features, price points, competitive, a, a forecast um, that, that has to be driven against each individual product. So then you dive in and you start working on the specific products. So what was the strategy on the first OG Xbox? I call it the OG Xbox. What, what was the, this is your guys' first, first time at bat um, mm-hmm. getting into gaming. What, what was the goals of that first console? Um, and how did you, uh, you know, it was such a small team. I think Robbie Bach was heading that up at the time. Yeah. Uh, what, what was the plan or the strategy? How involved was, was Bill Gates? Like what, what were we really trying to achieve with that first one? So the funny thing is by the time I got there, like I, you know, Aaron was my office mate, you know, he, he sat one office away from me. And, you know, again, I'm sure we'll talk about Aaron and Nathan's stories, but Aaron was there a little earlier than I was. By the time I got there, it was October of 2000. So it was already past the, the Valentine's day massacre and all of the, <laughs> the decisions have been made, but then it was kind of like, Oh shoot, we have to launch and we have no plan. Like we got to, sell a controller and we got cables and we've got to do power supplies all around the world. And so my, I really kind of like got thrown right into the, into the fire of just the mechanism of launching. So, you know, we had the DVD remote and no one was like, well, we got to get DVD playback. We're not going to put it in the console. How do we do it? You know, so I had to go figure out how to go have Thompson build a remote and licensing for DVDs. The controller, my, you know, one of my, my funniest story was my, uh, at Xbox was the very first day. Um, you know, I had moved up from California. I didn't know anybody in Washington. Um, and so, you know, the very, you go through orientation and the first thing I want to do, I'm the planner for the hardware is, can I see the console, right? Can I see the controller? This is the one thing I want to do the very first day. So I go see the console. That's really cool. Um, I go see the controller and he hands it to me. And now I'm, I'm the planner for hardware. I own this, the business of this product. And it's like, well, what do you think? And I go, uh, it's big. <laughs> and he goes, all you need to know is it's done. 
And I was like, oh, okay. Um, (laughs) Well, this isn't going to (laughs) work. And so uh, we got to figure out how we're going to fix this. And so then um, I had to go kick off the whole program to do the the controller S, which will relate back to our story of naming. Um, But uh, that was the the revision controller we shipped a year later. So it was those things. I was really involved in the tactics more so than the strategy back in those days. Sure. So I'm going to cross off. So I met, we have a lot of mutual friends. I asked them all what I should ask you. Why the hell did we make the Duke controller? I'm just going to cross that right, right off the list. It was so you've done. got that one addressed. When I got um, there. What was, yeah, <laughs> it's a great excuse too. Uh, what was launch like a year later? Uh, you've got The Rock, you've got Bill Gates. You guys are, I'm surprised you didn't play like a Rolling Stone song to launch that. Like you do like a Windows product. Um what was uh what was like uh life like on day one with Halo dropping in the in the well, you know I, I mean everybody was was everywhere you know I'm trying to place myself um uh, so obviously we had gone you know we had launched the product there was obviously September 11th was a big uh terrible tragedy that happened right before our launch that caused a lot of um a lot of turmoil just in terms of the mechanism. You guys launched first week in November, right? right? November 5th. Yeah, exactly. So that, that kind of, that kind of put a dampener, um, you know, on some of the things, but we had had a big event. Uh, um, It was zero hour was 360. And I'm trying to remember what we called it, but it was, we had a New York and LA like 24 hour game contest thing. And I was um, on the ground running uh, the, the game stations and the competition for the California leg of that tour. And then on launch night, I was, you know, I waited in line with, with customers uh, at, uh, at EB and Redmond town center and just got in line with everybody. Nice. Did you guys know, when did you know how big halo was going to be? Like I had heard Aaron Greenberg had told me at E3 halo didn't land that well, but Bungie really was able to, to, to land the plane and, and crush that. When, when did you know that you had something really big? So I, there's an email I should drudge up. I, I think, e, so E3 was a bad showing. The game had performance issues. It wasn't that it was, wasn't fun, but people were really concerned about um, a lot of hitching and frame rate problems in the game. Mm. And it's like, hey, this thing's supposed to ship soon and it's really buggy. And I remember we got a build, I want to say it was like August uh, end of August. And I remember sending an email to Pete Parsons who ran game studios at the time and Robbie and a couple of folks. And I'm like, this game is freaking awesome. Like we got a good <laughs> solid build and I stayed up all night and, and got pretty close to beating it. And, t- and then you could tell there was like this build, someone from the halo team will probably have a stronger recollection, but there was a build that went around that everybody was playing and we all could tell. And yeah. you're like, oh man, this is just magical. Yeah. Um, so it, it did it did come together pretty close to the end. Yeah, I just felt like I I'm from Seattle, live in Seattle. I was like, all right, I'm gonna I'm gonna support Xbox, I'm gonna buy this box. And then I was like, wait, it's really good. Like it was it, not that there was surprise, but like first time out the gate, you just didn't think you guys would crush it. And I think there were some amazing games on there and, and Halo is I'm obviously passionate about Halo just from an IP perspective, but that first game was really, really special. So it was nice to see you guys launching with such a good piece of hardware. It was an interesting time in the industry. I mean, I think they did build a good box and they made a lot of good decisions and they did it in a very short period of time, which is even more remarkable. Um, because there really wasn't that much time to get it done. 
but it, you know, it was, it sort of captured the renaissance of PC gaming and Western game developers that was going on back in the day. So I think one of the things that was interesting was, you know, this kind of like, because it was a PC based box and there was this renaissance of PC games and, you know, a couple of like Sega, um, we were really closely aligned with Sega on a bunch of really cool titles like Panzer Dragoon and, and Jet Set Radio and Sega GT and stuff. So we had an interesting lineup. It was, uh, it was just a very different set of games and they were good games. Um, and I, I think that helped, like we were very differentiated from the PlayStation. Yeah, just a different, you got the shooter box kind of that, that automatically kind of attached to it. But the IPs were, were great. You know, Sony's games were great, but it just, it felt, it was far more Japanese and the, just the genres felt different. Totally. Um, yeah, it, it felt very complimentary. And I think that's, that gave a lot of people a chance to like give it a try because you were sort of two plus years in the PlayStation at the time and uh, a PS2 rather it had already been out for like two years and it was worth uh, the library was worth giving it a try because it was very different. So how far um, how far do you go with the original Xbox before you guys start thinking about a 360? What, you know, what's the next evolution? Like when do you launch the second one? How, how does your thinking internally go about Well, I don't, you know, I don't think I'm speaking out of school, but the business wasn't great. And so, you know, the console was very expensive to make. Mm-hmm. And um, it was, you know, an interesting business challenge when the more you sell, the more you lose, mm-hmm. um, which is sort of not where you want to be. Uh, and, and you know, Microsoft at the time, they were still getting a handle on how attach rates worked and how to think about the, there was no Xbox Live, there was no downloadable content, you know, there wasn't all of these other sort of business streams that you get today. So it was like basically games, accessories in the console, and that was your whole business. And it, the math didn't work really well because we had packed so much into the box. And so it was pretty obvious that we probably could have sold a lot more original Xboxes than we did. But um, most people, some people might not remember, we actually raised price on the console. We bundled some games and, and raised the price at the uh-huh. very end. Um, and uh, so we started thinking about the next console would probably, let's see, if we launched in 2000, the next Xbox 360 was 2004. So it was probably like within a year and a half we were talking about 360. Okay. And what goes into the thinking? Like, do you look at, um, is it just, do you look at technology power and those kind of things? Where does the consumer come into it? What, what is your guys' thinking as you're planning out hardware? You know, 360 is like, so I would say someone should write a book, but someone did write a book um, (laughs) on it. But you know, that was probably the most fun time um, because I think people liked Xbox and it it hadn't sold great. Um, you know, it sold well. We kind of kept our, uh, sales with the GameCube for the most part. We were kind of neck and neck for second place, um, or distant thirds, depending on how you want to look at it. Cause the PlayStation two was so far ahead, but like people liked Xbox, we had good momentum and we learned so much. And I think because we iterated so quickly, it was sort of like, um, what were the things that we wanted to get done on original Xbox that couldn't get done, like around online play, around live? What did we learn from launching Xbox Live? And then what did we learn on the hardware? Um, why why did we get ourselves in a bad spot around um, not being able to sell consoles long term and thinking through the long tail of the console? So, you know, the, the result of that is you see you know, X, from the software side, you see Xbox Live built in, but from a hardware side, it's like, that's why the hard drive came out, right? Because that was a huge bomb um, build materials uh, adder. 
And um, we knew that if you wanted to get to like a $200 console at the end, that hard drive never really got cheaper. It was, you know, almost 20% of the, the cost. Mm-hmm. And that's why you saw two SKUs. So you just saw a lot of a lot of smart decisions around the long term because we had sort of run a couple of laps on on OG, and uh, it was just God. It was an exciting time. It was it was really really an exciting and fun. Um, everybody was on the same page. Um, and you guys had moved off campus a little bit. Like it was kind of, I just remember it being very secretive. Like I think the Jay Allard was kind of doing a lot of the public facing speaking of it, but it was very much like, how do we, how do we make this thing not feel corporate from an outsider perspective? Yeah. First stories that I read, it was, you know, kind of very secret, very special kind of how do we really treat this differently? Um, what, what was that like? You know, for many years I said, I worked at Xbox and I didn't work at Microsoft. It was very intentional. You know, God, bless Robbie and Jay and, and Ed back in those days for basically sort of taking all of the, they shielded everybody from all the Microsoft, uh, Microsoftness. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, it's it, to go back and talk to Robbie now, right. About some of those things and, and, and hear some of the stories that we weren't aware of at the time. And of course I was just a, you know, low level guy, right. Mm-hmm. You know, I only know a lot of this cause there's only like 250 of us. Right. So everybody knew everything, but you know, um, they, they kept that stuff out of our hair and let the team focus on the product. And, um, you know, they knew, I mean, Bill was very smart to know that Microsoft was a liability, um, in terms of getting into this space. Um, and so letting Xbox be Xbox and Microsoft didn't really come into Xbox and Xbox branding until, Probably like a couple of, I mean, I said a couple of years ago, probably Xbox One was when Microsoft branding started, started really playing a role. Um, and that was, you know, Bill and, and Steve and, and Robbie and those guys just making really good decisions. That was really, your Xbox is really in a, uh, there's gotta be something I'm, I'm probably missing something, but like that was the only really consumer facing brand, right? Everything else is kind of corporate. You, you know, you've got, you know, you've got Azure now and you've got office and you've got a lot of stuff, but this is the cool stuff that you guys have. I mean, you, you take Zoom um, and put it to the side, but like this was the consumer brand. This was the cool, this is the cool part of Microsoft. It was. And they hired, you know, they hired a lot of outside people. I came, they tried to get as many games industry people as they reasonably could, um, you know, in t- terms of, uh, you know, I came from EA, you had a bunch of Nintendo people, you got some Sega people, you got more EA people later when Peter joined. Um, but, and some more, sorry, more Sega people rather mm-hmm. future EA person. <laughs> uh, but, uh, yeah, they tried to hire a lot of industry talent too, to, to get some knowledge. They, they were smart enough to know that this wasn't a business that they knew and, yeah. and they hired a lot of good people. What, what was the thinking about building the physical box face plates? Um, eventually we're going to add on a, a dr- drive on the top. Like what, what were some of the thinking or things that you learned that kind of made that console so special? Well, you know that, so, so the accessories plan for 360. I remember we had a goal to get to a billion dollars in like five years and we did it in three. 
on the accessories business. And that was, um, and, you know, partially that was uh, luck um, on a couple of technology decisions we made. And partially it was, um, you know, really thinking about high value accessories and, and then things that we could later integrate. So, you know, the one I'm sure people will rip me a new one on is the wireless adapter, because when we were building 360, wireless wasn't really a thing. Like it didn't yep. ship in every modem in your house. And we knew we would add that in at some point later, but that was like a huge accessory when wireless took off. But then we didn't, again, it was a smart thing that we learned from the last one. Don't burn the console with it. We can add it in later. Yeah. Right. So sell it as an accessory. If it takes off, great. So when we go to do a, a price reduction or we do a slim version, we add it in, there'll be, that'll add value. Um, and if it doesn't take off, we didn't burn every console with, you know, all the money of, of yeah, and accessory attach rates are terrible. You know I mean? Like that's an accessory you really need. Like I, I don't know what the history of attach rates are, but I don't think the HD DVD drive had a huge number. That'll right? be a that separate kind of option. Yeah, that wasn't a big one, but no, for us, yeah. you know, <laughs> we did like, you know, we had a great line of headsets, remote controls, we had, um, you know, a wired and wireless controllers. There was the steering wheel. All those products, the wireless adapter, the hard drives, they all, they all did really, really well. And those felt functional. I mean, I think you're right about the HD DVD drive. There's some accessories are just kind of nice to have, um, but like a wireless controller was critical, right? The, the extra space for storage attached to the top was important. Um, face plates was definitely a unique position to customize um, your box yourself. I mean, I think we all still have 360s. Anyone who's our age, that ha- we, we all still have 360s just so we can play NCAA football. Uh, um, but, but I think the customization and, and stuff, I, th- I thought that was, um, that was an amazing piece of, of hardware. How fast did you guys know that you had won the generation? Like uh, how, how far into uh, it so, were you like, you know, again, this is funny. So, so by the end, it was about even. And so I have to, to keep myself honest. I think the PS3 sort of caught up. But that's a win because you were Um, so like when, when you talk about like how far you were behind in the previous generation, because you had launched later, um, but then to come out and have a lead even ending with a tie. I mean, that's, that's an amazing. You basically go from one console with 80% share and two consoles splitting 20% share to uh, was that gen seven, I think ending at about a third, a third, a third at the end, roughly. You know, the we had a huge uh, was a huge rocket ship and then dropped off really bad. We actually had a bump in the middle of the generation with Connect and with the Slim console, and then Sony sort of they they grew more steadily because they had obviously really had a bad pricing problem for the first two years, and once they figured that out, and then their game content got better, then they caught up, and they do really well globally as yeah. well. So, you know, when you when you look at it by region, it becomes interesting. But you're right, I, you know. For us, when did we feel really good? Uh, when they announced price. Um, you know, that that's when uh, I think I remember being in the room watching there with Robbie and, and a bunch of folks watching on a little computer screen and a little tiny potato window, you know, and they announced price and we were just high-fiving each other. I, th- um, I think I paid six ninety nine for for the high-end version of theirs, yeah. right? It was five nine nine. Was it four nine nine, five nine nine or five nine nine? And six nine nine. Yeah, it was five ninety nine, six nine. I remember spending so much money on that console, um, and they were hard to get. The I, you know, you wanted the. Yeah, I didn't even think we had a teraflop, but uh, it was, it was 20 gigs the most memory possible at the time. Gigs, I think were the two. 
Yeah, some yeah, something like that. And did they both no, play they Blu-ray? Did one, didn't I, one, of them? one of them had back compat, and the other one didn't. And one of them had a bigger hard yeah. drive. They both played Blu-ray. Okay. Yeah, which is uh, which we'll get to that in the, for the next generation. But uh, but yeah, that that was amazing. I, I thought the price was definitely kind of the day you guys knew that that you had um, something. Yeah, connect. Let's talk about connect sure. for a second. Why connect? Was that did that extend the length of the box? Did you think, or what was the thoughts behind and the strategy behind uh, bringing? You connect know, so in? so that was you know I, I got to give Don a lot of credit because you know we when. Um, when he came in the, you know, it was going to, it was two or three, three years in, and, you know, at a seven year life cycle, it's like, you're looking at three and four is the peak and then it starts to drop off. Right. So you've got a curve for in your sort of seven years. Mm -hmm. And, um, the, we was just absolutely crushing it. And Don pushed the team really hard on, on cost reducing the console. That's Don Matt. And that's Don Matrick, Don Matrick right? yeah. It, left, uh, left EA, left us, and, and what? And I guys. work with Don back in, you know, in EA Canada days, launching uh, Diablo on the PlayStation and working with him on Need for Speed and stuff like that. So I knew Don a little bit and he before liked, he came. he liked you because he judges um, people's cars. I have good stories about <laughs> Todd Citroen getting destroyed by him at a at a valet because like i can't i hired a guy that drives that kind of comment so you will get to your car collection but he must have oh we had a lot you. he you know he really was you know as a person like just some one-on-one if you could get time with don was just a really great guy um and and a fun guy to talk to and you know had an interesting worldview you know um it reminds me a lot of you know bing like a version of bing gordon mm-hmm. right that's just you want to spend time with that guy and hear what he has mm-hmm. to say it's not all right but the stuff that is right <laughs> is like outstandingly interesting um but uh so he really pushed hard on on price for the console and and like what are we going to do to stop this you know he really challenges him what are you going to do to stop the the downward trend how do we keep this mm-hmm. thing going um, because we have a hit, right? And people like the product. And um, so, you know, because of him, we did the the slim console, which I still think probably one of the best console designs of all time would be the, the Xbox 360S, again, mm-hmm. back to naming. Um, but, uh, and, and all the features we added to that product and made it smaller. And then Connect was part of a, a bunch of initiatives that had at different teams to go figure out what we could do sort of in this casual space. As, as the we kind of figured out that people wanted to be social and kind of unlocked a bunch of latent gamers. Um, and he's like, what are you guys going to do? And I remember working Kitman. Alex Kitman was my product planner because I was on the marketing team for accessories at that time. I ran accessories marketing and third-party marketing. And uh, I remember Alex and Mark Witten sent us all on an offsite with a bunch of brainstorms. And we all kind of came back with different pitches. And Alex had this idea about this technology that he'd seen that could, that could track your motion. And um, that was, that was a lot of fun. It's unfortunate that connect sort of has a bad, has now kind of has a bad uh, association with it because that first product was really, really fun to work on. Um, And uh, a lot of good stories from both the product and marketing side on that. So that was, you know, Don pushing the team and, and then the team sort of stepping up and coming up with an interesting, uh, an interesting product. Yeah. I did think it was cool. I think it was, it was 
to be honest with you, it was early, right? I think you guys were ahead of it, which you see that a lot um, is you guys were ahead of it. I feel like we'll get into the Xbox one, but I think the always on concept is a hundred percent being vindicated by kind of the way we're gaming now. So was, you know, was that early? Because I think I, I totally get the reaction to the Wii. When I was at EA, we saw the Wii and we were like, I'm not making anything for that. Like that's not gonna, you know, my Nintendo, they, they, they focus on home products only. We're third party. We're not going to make anything for that. And then, you know, six months into the launch, we're like, all right, I think we need to figure something out. Cause (laughs) the, the attach rate is, even if we get a small attach rate, it's still a really big number. So, you know, I can totally see the reaction to how to uh, make sure that you're addressing that. Cause that was a beast at launch. Yeah, the all-time greatest uh, industry own, right? As everybody was ignoring that thing. And and then, you know, a year later, everybody was scrambling. Yeah, no, for sure. Um, so tell me about the development of the Xbox One. What what was kind of, you're about to, you've, you you know, you're, you're tied, as you said, but you really did, you won that generation. You did really, really well. What are you guys thinking kind of heading into what's the new box? And, and how do you think about um, consumers and connectivity and, and those kind of things with a new box? Yeah, it's funny. So Digital Foundry just did a retrospective on the Xbox One unveil, which is so painful to go back and watch because it's so obviously um, tone deaf. But I know why all those decisions were made. And I feel this weird need to sort of like justify it. Sure. Um, be, be, but like, because it, it's like, well, I know it was wrong, but let me explain why. And and I, I know that was wrong, but let me explain why. And, and I think there was... Um, what was wrong? What do you think people think that are wrong? Cause I, I don't look, I look at it through a different lens because uh, you know, I work with Microsoft and so I I'm probably g- gentler on it, but what did we think the, the challenge was? Cause I remember having the discussion about um, used games and the, the mm-hmm. conversations about used games and all of those things, but um, which would have been kind of interesting if, if that stuff was addressed. Yeah. Um, but what did you think um, some of the challenges that consumers think the challenges were? Yeah, it's funny. If you ask, uh, if you ask a hundred people that were there at the time, you'll get a hundred different answers. So I'm not <laughs> going to pretend I know exactly what it is, but if I was, everybody wants to say it was this one thing or it was this other thing. And I don't think it was any one thing like, Oh, the hardware could have been a little more powerful. That wasn't the reason. Oh, mandatory connect. That wasn't reason. Oh, you know, it wasn't any one thing. What I think happened was, and actually the digital foundry guys clued in on this. um, There was a lot of data that informed those decisions. And if you took, if you take um, and data by like, what are customers doing right with our console? Mm -hmm. And if you sort of take away all of the sort of fandom and console warring and just take a practical view at what was being said, it's all come true. Like there was no, there was no prime video and HBO max and like reinvigoration. Like if I had told you that that company that sends you DVDs was going to be the biggest network on the planet, Mm -hmm. you would have laughed at me. Mm -hmm. Like nobody saw what Netflix is today. Um, you know, and, and, and Don and uh, many people did, they were like, Hey, there's going to be this renaissance of TV and content and people are spending half their time on the console on Netflix and doing other things. And mobile is so fast and how they switch. And there, these devices are all always online. Um, you know, and so if we went and moved to this online model, then X, Y, Z, right. Then good things will happen. And in somewhere in this good thinking, 
sort of like they lost sight, they lost the plot a little bit about the customer and and forcing things. I think the biggest mistake wasn't that they had an online mode. It was that they didn't have an offline mode. It, the biggest mistake wasn't that Connect was included. It's that there wasn't a version where Connect wasn't included. Yeah. And so had, had, had they done a couple of simple things differently and i say they i mean i was there you know we i know where everybody kind of was in the ranks of all these debates if we had offered a little more choice um then i think it would have been a different story if people had said oh yeah there's one with connect and one without oh and if you if you are online all the time here's a bunch of cool features you get around digital games and if you aren't online just use your discs uh and 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 so it's just it's very very complicated (laughs) yeah right and and a little bit about the presentation too, right? How it, you know, just kind of dawn and some of the, the, I think the new leadership is so forward leaning on consumer sentiment and what do fans yeah. want and, and yep. delivering for them. And I think that's from lessons learned, right? Totally. Not having, not having those guys have been in the last generation, but I think like this, like Keely still calls me and jokes about the submarine and da, 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 da. Yeah, but yeah. I, I still think it, there is, there was a lot learned in that generation that the team is applying now, which I, you know, it's, it, it was a, a tough beat to take at the time, but it, you know, hopefully that's, that's really kind of helped cement some of the, the relationship that they have now with the consumer. Yeah, I agree. I, I think messaging was a big part of it. And I, 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 for sure, I think you see how, um, from Xbox one and project Scorpio and, and now what the team's doing with, with uh, Series X, uh, you know, is and and just all up, you know. I know you talked to Chris Munson about FanFest, and that was a big pivot. That you know, and that was credit to Yusuf and and um, uh, you know uh, Phil and a lot of the leadership that was sort of there after after Xbox One launched. And I remember Yusuf wrote a whole paper about like you know let's be for the fans and sort of circulated it, and it was you know he started he started that change, and and it was good. It was good change. Yeah, it's, and it's and it's. So interesting how, and from an outsider's perspective, how serious and passionate they are about it. Like it is a, it is not something that's a corporate speak. It is like Phil and Aaron and these guys are like passionate about doing the right things. Um, so it's, it's interesting to see as you guys pivoted to the Xbox one, what was kind of, how did you, how did you change some of the the thinking as they got into the new hardware um, into the, to the S and the X and those kind of things? Well, you know, again, it's it's funny because the timelines are so a lot. A lot of this, a lot of the change was happening before launch. I, I mean, I, I think people realize that course correction needed to happen, but there's a you know, you know, it, it when you've got hardware <laughs> in particular, it, it yeah. takes a long time. So, so actually, the Pro- Project Scorpio, um, I actually presented that to Don and the leadership team. Um, in 2012, like two years mm. before we launched, I presented that idea. And, um, and the Xbox One S was almost done, like pretty close to done by the time I think Phil actually took over. Okay. Um, and uh, when I say done, I mean like, you know, obviously there were still lots of decisions to be made, including shipping it or not. Um, and, you know, thank God Phil sort of had faith in the team because it would have been very easy to say like, I don't want to ship another piece of hardware right now um, after we just shipped, you know, because he's asked to make these decisions Mm -hmm. shortly after we just shipped hardware and are having problems. Mm -hmm. Um, But uh, a lot of those things were kind of in play uh, because the team was course correcting. Um, 
and trying to get, uh, trying to make some good decisions. So, you know, the Xbox One S was a direct result of, of the feedback that we knew was coming on size and, and, and things like that. Yeah. And I think that, you know, it's so good to see just kind of the evolution of it. I think, you know, people are saying consoles and our console is going to last and where does it go, but it's good to see the S and then it's, it's exciting to see series X coming um, and kind of what they've shown and what, what they, you know, what fans are, they're going to see more in July. um, But it'll be interesting to see um, the evolution of kind of that space. And if they continue to focus on um, what fans are looking for and how to build that out. Yeah, it's fun to watch on the inside. I mean, I had glimpses into the plan, but not enough to know uh, exactly what it, you know, it was so long ago that I had insights into the plan. It's kind of fun to watch this launch as a customer, as opposed to, you know, being sort of in the thick of all the decision making. I don't envy the team. You know, I know, I know exactly what this is like. Yeah. It's fun to watch your Twitter as you're, as you're kind of commenting from a, from the outsider's perspective, especially, you know, I think you, uh, you got a lot of a uh, buzz during the Sony press conference on, uh, that. Nice. <laughs> yeah, that thing looks great. Like, wait, that Whoops. didn't, la- that That's didn't last very long. <laughs> well, when I first saw it, I couldn't conceive in my mind how big it was. And so in my mind, I thought it was about the size of a, if that box was, had been the same size as like a pro or yeah. a PS4 pro, it would have been like, I think one of the, best console designs ever because you're like man they crammed all of that extra i know how much volume you lose in all of those extraneous shapes and things like that um and so i'm like wow man that thing's small and then i'm like because there's no context yeah (laughs) you don't see it next to anything else and then an hour later people like have you seen how big this thing is um, well, uh, I think it's just, it's funny because I'm assuming what your head was is like, well, I wouldn't make it that big. I would have made it smaller, <laughs> like, because you do this for a living. And so like, why I would never, I, I would have lost, uh, I, I would have lost, I would have bet you a million dollars. It wasn't going to be that big. Yeah. Uh, you know, I mean, like it, it count, it, it's counter to everything I know about like how, what, how Silicon works and how cooling works. Um, and so I, I don't want to slam on it. I mean, it's oh, going to be totally. a great product and it's going to be super successful. If I'm purely talking about size, I would have bet you anything you wanted to bet that it yeah. was going to be smaller than the Series X. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure it's going to be great and they're going to deliver well. It just the, the design was just super. I like they built the five into it. Um, so I think uh, that, like the V is great. V, yeah, that's right. It's very it's very smart, but it does look a little bit like 90s, early 2000 technology. So it'll it'll be interesting how. Um, By the how, way, that V is also a Venturi, so it's great for cooling. So like that shape actually accelerates air like a carburetor. Um, so, so it's a very smart cooling decision. And that's what I figured what the X, the exterior, the exterior white allows for the, like break it down for us from a a far more intellectual side than I will. But like it, the fans are uh, assuming the fans are right, um, on the side, on the inside of the, the V that kind of comes up. Right. Well, it's hard. I mean, you know, there, you can cool with one large fan or many small fans. My guess is that they have a couple of small fans. What I what I think is that it is like a sandwich, right? In that the the center area that's black is vented all the way around, mm-hmm. and the clamshell on top of it basically acts to funnel the air in. Um, and and my guess is that to keep it cool and quiet and inexpensive. Um, you know, you, you can grow the box, right? Like there's, there's, it's that good, faster, cheap pick two problem, mm-hmm. right? It's like, I can have it quiet, cool, and cheap pick two. 
Yeah. Um, and, and so if they want cheap and uh, quiet, you know, or size is going to be another dimension. That was a bad analogy. You could cut that. No, but, Point yeah. being, growing the box helps keep it cool, quiet, and inexpensive. Yeah. What did you think of the Xbox? What did you think of the design of the Series X? Um, it was, well, it, it was very necessary to achieve the goals. I mean, uh, I, you know, I, I don't know what their messaging is on it. And so I don't want to say anything out of school, but I think it's definitely a design that was, if you want to be quiet and um, keep your silicon cool at, at the level of performance, like this is the smallest package you could design. And that was how they did it. Yeah. What is the smallest design that, that achieves those goals? Uh, and the fans seem to love it. Like just the feedback. I mean, people haven't touched it or felt it. I mean, because we don't have, because we're all locked in our homes, we didn't get to do E3 and, and those things. So people haven't seen it. I think people are going to be even more excited when they see it in person and they actually, when they hear it in person, um, because I've, I've been in the room with it and it's, it's amazing, but I was so glad to see a different, just a pivot, right? It's just, it's a, it's rolling the dice, but in a really good way. Well, I think Um, the industry respects, um, sort of honesty in design. And, you know, there, there's no doubt, like you, you could argue on one hand that it's not very inspired because, you know, it's a cube or a rectangle, right? Um, on the other hand, it's extremely honest in, in that it, it is trying to do a job in the least amount of space possible. And that's deliver a ton of performance um, and be quiet. And like people respect honesty in their product design. And I do like from a marketing perspective, there's a lot of, there's a lot of uh, surface to play with. Like we're, you know, we're going to be able to yeah. do some fun stuff with it. Oh yeah. Uh, you guys, is it colorware that still does all those? Yeah, they do a lot yeah, of stuff. You yeah. guys are I'm sure going to have a blast. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's just like, there's a lot of things. It wasn't a faceplate. Like it, the faceplate was easy because you just make this faceplate and you do it. Now we've right. got the whole thing to play with, which will I love you so much that you still talk about faceplates. I love that. Uh, I do. I, we're of the same era that we remember that. I looked the other day, I Googled Madden stuff for some reason, and I did a disc on head and shoulders where I put a demo disc on head and shoulders and I wrapped it around the thing. And it was like $700 on eBay. And I'm like, you've got to be kidding me. Uh, so then I went down the rabbit hole. I'm like, what are faceplates and what is this? And I just started Googling all the stuff that I made and, and just wanted to see how much all that stuff was. So it's it's fun to finally see some collectability in the industry um, to have people, cause I have the original Madden game. Um, I have did a you ever get one of the EA live consoles. Were you around for that? That, that white one that we did that was only I, for, for uh, like internal I, people. I did not. I think that was 2004. I started, I missed the press, co- the Muhammad Ali press conference with okay. everybody on stage. Yeah. Uh, Nathan has Nathan Stewart, who I worked, uh, when I ran the Madden franchise, Nathan was my day to day at Xbox. And then he went to Rockstar. And then when I left the Madden franchise and took over the A Sports brand, I hired Nathan to come in and replace me on the Madden franchise. And now he works at Wizards of the Coast. Right, which replaces you. At which Wizards replaces of the Coast, me. Yeah. So we have a crazy. And um, you know, of course, that I hired Nathan um, into Xbox and he was working for me when he was working with you. Well, I think, I think my question around Nathan is, is how many times have you fired Nathan Stewart? <laughs> he told you to he told you to say that didn't he he also told me to ask you how many uh chocolate milks and pop tarts have you had in your career at xbox (laughs) 
what's the story? What's the story with that? How many? Like, uh, well, so the story with fire. We're not going to talk about chocolate milk and pop tarts, but um, you know, it is. Uh, it's weird. I thought you would not want to talk about firing someone. You'd rather talk about that than talking about your your internal diet at Xbox. It was it was a different time where I would I would remind Nathan when he was a vendor that I could I had until eight o'clock at night to call the vendor and, and tell them that his contract was over. <laughs> so I would basically just walk into his office every night. It was, you know, it was like, uh, there's many probably not, you know, not for the podcast stories, but it was like my sort of princess bride thing, you know, good night, Wesley, good job. I'll most likely kill you in the morning. It was sort of like uh, good night, Nathan. Good job. I'm probably going to fire you tonight. Yeah. Oh, speaking but, of speaking of killing people, how did Aaron Greenberg get a? How did Aaron Greenberg end oh up my, on your list of people that people I want you? I believe the phrase he said is, "You had a list on your board of people to kill list." Oh he, my God, they are Greeny and Nathan are selling me out right now. I just, I, just I, I didn't get a chance to. We were friends. I never got a chance to work with you, so I needed these good questions. So he gets a call from HR saying, "Hey, you're on a." <laughs> kill list you don't have to dive into details but i just want you to know i have that question all right well i i i I can tell the story or i won't tell the story but yes i had a people to kill list now it's a long story i don't mind telling it because it is hilarious but it's long no please share what what do you so so again if anybody watched what is it was it happy madison or Billy Madison or how yeah, he's, he's, he's got the he list call, yeah. where he calls Steve Buscemi and he crosses his name off the people to kill list. Mm-hmm. Remember that? Yep. Absolutely. Okay. So outside of my office, um, I had a people to kill list and it was purposefully ridiculous. Right. And so sometimes, you know, you're just, something happens and like I had a car stolen. So I had like, I had like Greenberg and I had like the state of Ohio because they had some voting problem at the time. And I had like the guy who stole my Corvette because I had an old classic vet that got stolen. So it was, it was a completely ridiculous list. Right. Okay. So you have to know it wasn't just Pete. It was all kinds of random hilarious things. And I remember HR talking to HR and they're like, um, so that people to kill list, um, you should probably move it in your office. <laughs> and I go, is that really the right answer to having a people to kill list? Because you either know it's a joke or telling me to move it into my office isn't exactly the, solving the problem. Um, and we had a good laugh and I moved it into my office. So I was in that office for years and the list got long and lo- longer and longer and longer. So I finally had to move offices and I had the whiteboard outside and I moved my stuff And, you know, it took me like two days to move my office. And when I came back, the whiteboard was gone. And I assumed that someone had just erased it and used it. And that was the end of the people to kill us. Um, So Greenberg calls me like a couple of weeks later. And he's like, I got a call from corporate security that my name was on a a people to kill list. (laughs) And I go, now, this is, Aaron is a good human being, because if I had gotten a call that I was on Aaron's people to kill list, I probably would have sold down the river. But Aaron took this very seriously, and he goes, no, it's a joke. Everybody knows it's a joke. It's no problem. And I didn't hear anything about it, and I didn't think anything of it. A few months later, I get a call from corporate security, and they go, hey, we just want to know we concluded the investigation. We found a thing with your people that kill us. Now, this is how not seriously <laughs> I took this. I go, did you find the guy that stole my Corvette? 
<laughs> because he was on the list too. And if you found him, this was all worth it. Yeah. Like <laughs> if, you, if you talk to everybody methodically on the list, can I get that guy's name? Can I get that guy's name? Exactly. So that was, that's a story about the people. So yes, I actually was uh, investigated by corporate security for having a people to kill list with a completely bizarre and ridiculous list of things uh, to, and people to kill. Uh, and thankfully, Aaron uh, did not sell me down the river on that one. Thank Is you, it the guy that stole your Corvette, did he steal it? Is that the guy that actually stole it from work? Or I, I heard you almost had a car stolen from work or Greenberg told you about a car that you had stolen at so, work. So stolen car. So, we, you know, guys, everybody that's listening, please know it was a different time. I mean, we're talking like 15 years ago. We used to mess with, we would saran wrap people's cars completely closed, like complete saran wrap. Um, sometimes people would leave them running and run into the building and we would grab them and move them like to the other end of the campus <laughs> and then claim we didn't know where the car was. Uh, we would write each other tickets. Um, we would get the, make a photocopy of the security, uh, people's like ticket thing and, and write each other tickets for ridiculous things. We, <laughs> we had a lot of fun back then. We need to get back into that timeline for, uh, for, <laughs> for pranks at work. <laughs> Just so much, so much shenanigans. <laughs> Um, speaking of shenanigans, I had one more from Nathan. You like this one. Tell me about your fake handler from your agency at E3. Did you have a PR handler that was a fake PR handler? So, okay. So this one, I, I have a more vague memory of this than other people, but there was, um, there were PR handlers when you would be a spokesperson and the PR team loved to play jokes on me because I'm a good joke giver and joke getter. And one of them was to, um, they created a fake PR person with a fake agency email address. This person, by the way, still has a Facebook profile with many of us friends with it to this day, (laughs) this fake person. They created a Facebook. I mean, look, these guys went all out on this joke, so I don't feel bad. It had an, an email address from our agency. There was a Facebook page and they would just send me on, like they would just randomly say like, you need to be here at like 6.30 in the morning. And I would show up and there wouldn't be anybody there. Um, And then I'd get an email, you know, saying, oh, I'm sorry, there was a mistake or whatever. Come back at nine. You know, (laughs) like they would just they did this to me for like probably a good two days. And I would and then, of course, it would the PR was in on it, too. So when I go and complain to PR about how bad this this handler was, they like, you know, kudos to David Hufford and the the PR crew for keeping a straight face on on those. But (laughs) Definitely reminds me of my my Steve Chang days at EA, where if uh, if there's any way he could find out your room number, he would buy. He literally bought a hundred shots at E3 one time and had the waitresses come out, seven or eight things, and he would always pretend to take a shot. He didn't drink, so he'd throw it over his shoulder, and then somehow you, I would end up with a thousand shots on my hotel bill, uh, and then a wake up call at two thirty, three thirty, and four thirty a.m. Um, what he thought was hilarious because he was the boss. And I'm like, I'm pretty sure this $4,000 alcohol bill from the hotel lobby is shouldn't be on my hotel bill. And I would get called into HR for, for having kind of a $4,000 liquor charge at E3 with Steve Chang standing outside the window laughing at me. So, Oh yes. Those, you know, there was some, there was definitely some good nature. It was a different time, my friend. It was a different uh, time. It was. Do you have any Nathan Stewart stories that you want to throw him under the bus since he gave me a bunch of questions for him? You know, I figure I'm so bad at this. Like Nathan Stewart is a story. You know that. Like the guy's a walking story. 
Mm. Um, no, you know, look, Nathan is one of my favorite people. I'm so proud of like what he's doing now. And you're still a client of mine, so I can't say anything, but I can tee you up to say thanks. <laughs> but no, look, look, Nathan's a good, Nathan's a good guy. And, and, uh, you know, I, there's so much shenanigans we got into. It's hard to remember. Does he, does he spend as much at the Tokyo game show as you do from what oh I've Oh my heard? God. They really got you. <laughs> I know everything. <laughs> oh my God. Yes. But he didn't give me the number. What, what did we buy at the Tokyo game show that really kind of racked, racked up the numbers? Cause I, I, I just got, I went to Tokyo last year and had a blast. Um, but as a collector of action figures, I'm pretty sure I did a little bit of research today on, uh, you are the official fan page of, is it mask? <laughs> oh my God, man. This is a roast. Yes. I, would, I am a, I'm a man who like, who like, uh, as my wife will say, when I get into a thing, I really get into a thing. So, uh, cars, video games, like Japanese action figures, old eighties, vintage toys, star Wars, mask, all that stuff. You know, uh, I think someone on Twitter posted that I live like every day, like it's 1985. Um, uh, yeah. I was going to ask you what happened on January 9th, 1999. Cause I did go to the mask website and the counter is down. I want to see what counter number I was on. Uh, <laughs> oh on my God. I haven't up what happened is I haven't updated that thing in that long. <laughs> it's not like they're releasing new toys for a series that ended after a year in 1985. So I, I'm old. I had never heard of mask. I didn't even really? know that. I, oh I, man. It's be- the best part that. of GI Joe and the transformers. It's like and cars I, that turned into vehicles and stuff like that. It was the best. I, and I even worked on the, I, you know, I was at Wizards. I ran the Hasbro stuff for a little while with G.I. Joe. So that was, uh, it wasn't even in my wheelhouse. So I'm always pe- telling Nathan, whenever Hasbro's ready to get back on mask, let me know. I'm all in. I will dive in with ideas and suggestions. They've been trying to bring it back for a little while. They show up, the characters show up in like other, other media, like in Transformers, comics. Cro- and uh, crossover stuff. stuff. Yeah, crossover stuff. My last question is going to be about cars. How many cars do you own? It's an embarrassingly large amount. I get that question on shoes all the time, and I have a hard time answering the shoe question. But the car question is just a different. You have, let's talk, we could just talk movie cars. What what kind of movie cars do we have? I have, well, I have an A-Team van. I have a Smokey and the Bandit Trans Am. I have Knight Rider, but not the interior, like just the exterior part. I didn't do the full electronics. Okay. Inside. And then I have, uh, you know, again, talk about different times. I have a 68 charger that has the wheels from the Dukes of Hazard car, but is not in the Dukes of Hazard paint job. It's nice. black. Nice. So it's like an amalgamation between Dom's charger from, uh, from Fast and Furious and the Dukes of Hazard. I was going to say, you should probably position that as a Fast and Furious. I don't think you can paint the roof of the uh, Dukes of Hazard car anymore. Yeah, no, no. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. I mean, even the horn, I got to turn. I used to have the horn too. Oh, did you? <laughs> is the, I saw, I was looking at your list. Is your 1978 Pontiac Firebird? Is that your, is that yeah. the, uh, yeah, that looks right, cool. the old smoking the bandit car. Yep. I also liked, I was, so I was, I was doing my research 65 Oldsmobile. That was my dad's first car. Yep. Oh, I, was it really? My, it was my dad's first car. It's a 65 Olds 442. He bought it new in 65, obviously. He drove it. It got, uh, I got brought home in that car as a baby. They drove me home in that car. It got in a wreck in the eighties. Not my dad's fault. Some guy T-boned him and he just parked it. And then I restored it like in 2000 and, uh, like early mid 2006 or something like that. Wow. And then I brought my daughter home in that car. 
So, so I actually, we actually drove my daughter home from the hospital in that car. And that Funny exactly. story about that also is that my dad was, uh, my dad is a senior, I'm a junior, but he was not a senior when the car was registered. So when I went to register the car, I didn't do a title change. I just registered it as me. So uh, I am the only original owner of a car that's like 15 years older than I am. Wow, that's amazing. Uh, I w- when you're ready to sell your Pontiac Firebird, call me. Like I, 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 I'm looking for something fun. So that's a, uh, you, photos are beautiful. Well, so. you gotta, uh, if you're in the area, I mean, we'll have, there's a whole shop full of them. Yeah. There's all kinds. Yeah. I want to, I want, I won't make you give me the number, but I, I will definitely, uh, come up and investigate. Uh, I, I know I'm not allowed to ask you, but I'm gonna ask you anyways, you are now at Amazon yeah. doing, uh, really big things. What are you working on? Uh, stuff I can't talk about. That's what I figured. You guys are very secretive up there at that place. Yeah. Um, Yeah. I mean, that's, that's the neat part about Amazon there. You know, they, they keep quiet. Uh, they just whittle away on projects and, uh, do fun things and very different sort of place than Microsoft, which is kind of fun to learn a new place. And then, you know, when they're ready to launch, they talk about it. When, uh, when I'm allowed to fly again, I'm going to come up there and I want you to take me into those biodomes. Um, Oh yeah. And let's have some, let's have lunch and, and I'll, uh, I'll sneak something out of you. I'd love to, I can't wait to see what you're working on. Cause I know you're doing great things. So I can't wait to talk about it. It'll be fun. Thank you for taking the time. This is really fun. I, um, you have to call your friends and thank your friends. Cause I was just like, Hey, what should I ask him? And they, they gave me that gold. Huh. So well, you have had 30%. So you, so you've had 30% of the world's greatest poker night on your, because Aaron, Nathan, myself, and a few others in the industry have been playing poker for 20 years now. Uh, you have 30% of that poker crew on and you've had two of my ex-employees because I hired Chris Munson and Nathan into Microsoft. Uh, yeah, I've heard about the poker game. I didn't even want to delve into that, but I heard that's a lot of fun. Uh, lots of probably good stories out of there. Lo- so. Also lots of good stories. Yeah. Lots of different podcasts for sure. <laughs> well, thanks for having me on Chris. Uh, this was great. It's great. I appreciate that. I appreciate the time. It's fun to, uh, to hear the story. I wish I was there for some of those Xbox days. So it was, uh, it was fun to, to fun to hear them. So thanks for sharing.